Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Jake, how's it going, man? What's up, Mark? Thanks for joining me for another week of Reef Therapy. Yeah, yeah, let's do one more. Let's keep it going. Um, yeah, man. So how's your week been? I got some funny stories, but I want to ask you how your week was first. Um, you know, it's it's the thing about reef tanks. If you have, and also, I think I'll say this a lot, when you have 30 corals, 50 corals, 1,000 corals, you're fixated on the few that aren't doing well. Yeah. <laughs> and just out of the blue, this uh, turbine area here on Ensis that I've been growing out for like three or four years just started melting from one side. What? Just, yeah, just totally unprovoked. Nothing changed. Nothing happened. I might have been feed. It might, I might have been feeding the tank a little bit more. Yeah. And as the colony has gotten larger, you know, like a typical turbine area here on Ensis is like a plate with some spiky core lights pointing yeah. up. This one is like, was like, it's going to make a fabulous like shelf piece if it doesn't pull through. Um, it's like multiple branching tiers and plates and branching. It's really like dense. And I could see how in the middle of the tank, it might be capturing more detritus now that it's a larger size. So yeah, it just came out of the blue. Um, you know, I fragged a couple pieces off the, the bottom of it that seemed less affected. Um, I don't know if it's going to pull through. I have a few other strains, but that's one that was like, there's one of those just almost like throwaway junky pieces of Hieronensis that I had kicking around for a long time yeah. until I got it into position, you know, and got it to a place where it liked. And then there's one coral. It's just so weird. The polyps never come out during the day. They always come out at night. And there's three other turbinera Hieronensis in the same tank. No other corals are affected. So I'm just assuming that because it, it was so large and uh, really a, a three-dimensional shape, that it just started catching some detritus in a um, damaging way. So, you know, it's like all the corals are doing amazing. All the tanks are doing amazing. All the fish are doing great. And, you know, last few nights I'm going to bed, I'm like, oh, no, my hero coral, poo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, otherwise, like, so far so good. It's been a good week. Uh, I've, I've, I've had issues with my house and now, ha like, a piece of my upstairs ceiling is missing and, but that that's not reef related. But uh, so I'll have I have some funny stories. I'll start with the first one. Um, I think we talked about this on reef therapy. But out of all the pests for the last, I want to say fifteen years, I have not encountered aptasia in my tanks. And it's not nice. that I'm not looking, right? Right. Um, I just haven't. And now in my coral quarantine. This weekend, I'm like, or this past weekend, I looked in and like, holy crap, I got a bunch of aptasia. So they must have hitchhiked on something that I'm, you know, holding in there that I just recently bought. But it's just funny that I said it and then I jinxed myself and I have some aptasia one, to deal with. One thing I'll say about sneaker uh, aptasia is anytime I get frags from someone, they go, even if they go into a main display, they go like on a rack or something by themselves and I'll just leave them alone. And without any other algaes in the tank, without any other aptasia in the tank, they will grow out of a frag, like the, fr the frag base, the frag plug, right? The frag plug will come in about as clean and new as possible, you know, with a healthy dose of biofouling. Yeah. And, and, you have to assume that some of these coral vendors 
frag farmers are managing uh, pests and parasites. You know, yeah. they have a copper band or a file fish to eat down the aptasia or, you know, plenty of cleanup crew and surgeon fish to eat down the algae. But absent of those, I mean, like, like I said, you, visually you'd look at it and be like, oh, man, that's a really clean frag plug. Just leave it alone for two, three, four weeks. And it's, it's just a whole ecosystem of unwanted I, things yeah. that sprout out of the ceramic. It's, it's really astounding how little it takes for any of those things to, to sneak in. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. And I mean, I think we're probably the same. Normally, I remove the frag plug. Um, in these particular cases, these were corals that were so heavily encrusted on the frag plug that I was like, eh. And then I briefly debated. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll take a syringe of hydrogen peroxide and just very accurately and carefully basically fizz all the plug without getting it on the coral. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish I had done that, but I didn't. Um, So yeah, uh, now I got to go eradicate it. But you know, the the upside is it sort of validated my need for starting to have a little holding tank for new coral purchases because it didn't make it into my display, right? So you never know. You never know. Even my own tanks or my own corals you just never know what is present, but just being mitigated by the biology of your aquarium until you move it into another tank and observe what does or doesn't come out. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, so before we dive any deeper, um, I just want to make a couple announcements. Uh, one, uh, we're at number 19, the 19th what? session of reef therapy. Yeah, exactly. And we've taken a couple of weeks off, but we're, you know. We're uh, chugging away, and I, I see echoes of the, our discussions on the reef sphere online, and it's, it's really, really cool. Um, but this is going to be the final episode, the last episode of Reef Therapy uploaded to the Reef Builders YouTube channel. Um, just a little little bit of boring kind of behind-the-scenes business stuff. We have long-form videos from... Um, uh, reef therapy and we have long form videos from reef stock at home and they're really affecting the views on the main reef stock ch- reef builders channel so the the <clears throat> reef therapy channel is already established we have uploaded videos there and that'll be a great place for clips so if you enjoy uh watching uh reef therapy on youtube make sure before we <laughs> move any further go ahead and go to uh the reef therapy uh channel so but if you're listening to it a podcast, everything will be the same. Just make sure, you know, subscribe in your favorite podcatcher, rate us, all that jazz. Um, I think that's I think that's most of the housekeeping we need to do, and uh, we can get back to the discussion. Yeah, and you always, uh, you guys always put the link in anyway, so they can scroll down and click and find the uh, Retherapy channel pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, and as an added bonus, we actually have a, a new widget or something installed on the website where you can stream the podcast of Reef, Build, of Reef Therapy right on the Reef Builders homepage, right? Oh, so you can cool. get your Reef Builders news digest alongside listening to your Reef Therapy. Eh, kind of fun. I dig it. Yeah, you can watch your Reef Tank, read the news, and listen to Reef Therapy at the same time, all in one place. I had to laugh. I was watching um, a video of somebody interviewing somebody on a reef tank and somebody made a comment like, you know, hey, they're showing reef tanks. This is so much better than watching two guys drink beer and talk about reef tanks. And I was like, man, 
we're trying to be a podcast. So it's the focus is audio discussion, but you know, we do the video because some people, I mean, I, I, I'd same, like I'll watch some of my podcasts in YouTube format because the reactions yeah. and stuff are good. Yeah. Um, but uh, every now, every now and then we'll have something to show. Yeah. Um, I have yeah, a lot you, you, <laughs> you can consume it however you want. Um, but man, I, I love working on my reef tanks and listen to people talk about reef tanks. That's just my jam for sure. They could be talking about like the most banal thing. And I'm like, it just puts me in my zone. Yeah. It made my day. Somebody commented that, uh, this is their cue to do maintenance on the tank. So like whenever a new one drops, they'll listen to it and they'll do their tank maintenance or water change. And that made my day. Yeah. Um, I mean, just imagine a couple of years from now, we're going to have, I don't know, 200 sessions out there. And there's just going to be a generation of reefers who, who, who are like, oh, there's an episode of reef therapy. Let me pop in my earbuds and go like wipe down my tank or clean my skimmer or test my water or better yet, do a deep dive on cleaning my power heads or eradicating some Aptasia. You know, there's something so fun about the meta part of it. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I'll, I don't think it's exclusive to anyone. I think almost everybody is all about it. Yeah, so I guess for today, and this sort of um, cues up part of what I what, what I thought would be good for today is that um, one, um, I, I thought it'd be good to talk about just quarantine in general, and we've talked about it a, a bit, but um, and not really. I don't want to get get off my lawny about it, but just maybe just share our opinions about why we do it and why we think it's beneficial, both for coral and fish, but then also. Um, as you mentioned that we're already 19 episodes in, I thought it'd be kind of fun to address some of the questions that have come up in the feedback on, you know, at least on YouTube. I, I haven't been able to see if there's anything through, I don't, I don't know if you can do questioning. Now, yeah, on, that, that, so that's the re- main reason that we do re-therapy on YouTube yeah. because you can't comment on Spotify or your Apple podcast. Maybe there's a platform I don't know of that you can comment on, but um, that is one of the few ways that we can get some feedback on what we're discussing. Um, but yeah, I think it's about time to, to talk about some or to go over some of those questions that we've had. I haven't looked. I mean, I, I try to engage and I look at them and I answer them on the spot, but I can't think of any right now. So it's going to be on you to kind of take a look at those. I copied um, a few down. Um I mean, some of them are just very specific to reef keeping, like, hey, what do you guys think? Should I do this or that? And then other ones were a bit more of, you know, deeper questioning or, um, but yeah, uh, we'll, we can try to get through all of them. I don't have a lot, but. I think we could frame this discussion way beyond typical quarantine, right? I think we should, um kind of covered the archetype of what people typically think of as a quarantine aquarium, but there's so much more to it than that in terms of making sure to get healthy, pest-free livestock into your display aquarium that is going to live a long time without giving you too many troubles. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, one way to lead into that is because, um, Another experience I actually had today really triggered the thought because I was, in a way, the the benefactor, is that the word? Uh, the beneficiary of uh, somebody doing an amazing job quarantining some fish, right? And so it Ooh. wasn't even my quarantine efforts, but just to get a fish in a shipment in the condition that it was in was, was a bit of a mind-blowing thing for me. Um, 
So that actually leads me to the other funny story. So I ordered some fish and um, normally the FedEx guy, you know, COVID and all right now, they'll, they don't, they just drop it off at the door and, and walk away. And I'm good with that. I don't want to do the whole signature, but I noticed the FedEx guy was still standing there. So I opened the door because I thought something was wrong. And he was like, Hey man, I just ordered some fish from them as well. <laughs> no way. And, uh, so that blew my mind that my FedEx driver was a reef keeper. And next thing you know, uh, we were talking for about 15 minutes about, uh, reef aquariums and fish. And so if, uh, your package was late and you live in my area, I apologize, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, super cool dude. Um, who'd but, you order from? So say? I, uh, I ordered, um, two fish, uh, from TSM aquatics and I'd never nice. ordered from them before, admittedly. Um, I'd been a bit of a loyalist with Live Aquaria. I liked their Diver's Den, but um, one fish that I had for like 10 plus years was a Regal Angel. And mm -hmm. I had to quarantine it. It came in in bad shape. And then I had to feed it clams from Whole Foods, you know, and teach it how to eat. And then it took uh, months and months and months before it would eat anything else. And I mean, it was a journey. I mean, and of course, that becomes your favorite fish because you put so much effort into it. So... I've always had a soft spot for Regal Angels, and um, I was actually, uh, it was last week I noticed that they had uh, a juvenile Regal Angel available, no pre-order, like it's done with quarantine, and I was like, you know, I'm going to buy that fish, you know, because I, I thought with their uh, rigorous quarantine process, one is I'm getting a disease-free fish, but if it survived that long, it's probably eating well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I I put it in an acclimation box in my reef tank and I threw some pellets in there and literally five minutes after it being uh, drip acclimated and put in the acclimation box, it was eating pellets. And Oh my God. For yeah, a regal angel, especially a juvenile, that just blew my mind. And I thought, see, I am benefiting from somebody doing an amazing job what is your time worth? What is yeah. not even the time? It's not even just, I mean, if you're, if you're young and you want to learn and you really want to kind of master all those techniques, yeah, sure. Go buy whatever raw fish you can find and try to fix it up. But when you're, you know, young professionals like you and myself, you got a family, you got a career, you know, just the, the stress of dealing with it. Even sometimes it can be really straightforward, but yeah. when you can receive a fish, um, from a company like TSM that is just ready to go eating pellets, man. That's to me, that's when, that's when, you know, you've made a pellet or flakes Yeah. because I mean, you're still going to feed frozen food. You're still going to feed, you know, really hearty food. There's lots of stuff they can graze, but once they can eat that prepared food that anyone can just pop into the tank, um, you just, you just know that's going to be an awesome fish. And, you know, we did a feature on TSM probably, you know, within about a year and, they are unique as a company because they don't just quarantine their fish. They don't just go through the motions. They actually take um, like uh, some 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 scrapings of the side and maybe a little bit from the gills, pop it under a microscope and make sure that there's no discernible ectoparasites. I mean, obviously, you need a lot more equipment to get down to the bacterial level, but that's you know, it's like a, a, a multi-point inspection on, on a car, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, we, we put this thing through quarantine. Now let's verify that that fish is 
pest and parasite free. It actually kind of boggles me that there's a few companies that, you know, promote quarantine and they say they quarantine fish. And again, they go through the motions and some things do work. But if you don't have a microscope or dissecting scope or something to verify your protocols and your techniques, you're just guessing. Yeah. You're just guessing. And so that's one of the things about TSM. You know, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, the fish, depending on the fish, right? Depending on the species, the, the price is a little bit of a premium, but it's not just the time involved in quarantine and conditioning the fish. It's also like just that peace of mind. But, you know, even if I'm, if I'm treating something that I've treated before and I know it's going to be fine after three, four days or a week, I'm still a little bit on edge dealing and handling with that fish. That's yeah. why I like I go through periods where I'm like, all right, let's get a bunch of fish in. I haven't quarantined anything in a while. Then I do it all at once and I manage everything. And then once everything gets distributed to the tanks, I'm like, okay, no more fish, no more new fish for like three to six months. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, it's exhausting, man. I mean, I'm quarantining uh, a couple of fish right now. Um, my local fish store is great. You know, they keep their copper steady. They do hyposaline. So, I mean, the fish, if they've been there a while, are usually in, in fairly good condition. And, and, you know, they're always happy to show you if they're eating. So, that was more, I walked in the store and I was like, you know, I have never kept a copper bannon. But like you said, um, I'm training it to eat better. I'm, you know, going through the motions for flukes, right? Doing the prazzy thing and doing, you know, aggressive water changes because it's a small quarantine tank and I'm feeding pretty heavy. But it's it's like a job, you know. <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's it's involved. Right? Yeah, and some t sometimes that's like part of the hobby, dude. I have the biggest like rush of satisfaction when I fix a fish. Yeah, right. I and mean, that's I would say that's about fifty, more than fifty percent, more than fifty percent. You know, usually I can uh, diagnose something, treat it, but it's going to go in its own quarantine tank. It has to be fed separately and just the act of feeding it separately from the main quarantine system or conditioning system. And then all the other displays, it just takes away from the enjoyment. And, um, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And so, but it, the, the, the big takeaway for me was cause you know, when you go through the effort of conditioning and quarantining a fish, I mean, you know, today my copper band started eating flake food because I've been mixing flake food in with the um, mastic and, you know, he's, that's, that made me happy, right? To your point, like I'm, it's rewarding, but um, I guess the epiphany didn't really hit hard until I unboxed a fish that I felt fairly comfortable introducing directly into my display because somebody else had gone through the effort of doing all that. And being and like verifying it, right? Right. And we're just around the corner now with aquabiomics, where maybe not now, maybe in a couple of years, maybe in five years, that that fish will have its certificate of health from yeah. aquabiomics, right? So if like say say somebody like TSM has a batch of fish and they develop their own techniques or they send uh, you know samples off to uh, aquabiomics, they could live, literally give you the rundown of what. Uh, environmental DNA was found in the water that that fish is in. And um, that might be a little deep if you want to take a look on reefbuilders.com. We did a whole write-up on the the test for fish diseases and parasites. But yeah, I'm like, I think pretty sure that's the future. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure we can we can glimpse the future from where we're standing right now. That would that would be amazing. Like we're, we already have that right now with salt, 
right? Sea salt, plenty of companies have uh, uh, ICP batch analysis of what that salt mixes up at. Like, why, well, you know, it's not a big leap to say, wow, you know, maybe in five years or so, you know, when you get quarantined fish, they might have this bill of health sign off from a company like Aquabiomics. Man, people who say that there's no innovations happening in the reef aquarium industry are not paying attention. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I I've, I did the aquabiomics uh, when I had the stony coral tissue loss disease or whatever it was, and it blew my mind how much additional information there was. And, you know, one thing I've learned from my other job is that usually what happens is you, part of the discovery is the ability to aggregate a bunch of data, right? And at first mm -hmm. you're like, well, what do we do with all this data? But then over time, the patterns start to present themselves, right? And it's fascinating that they can test for the presence of ectoparasites now. Um, now you're going to start, you know, things that are mysterious. Maybe some of the things that, you know, you've had with your euphilias and, and you know, it's just, you know, you could find that eventually they have answers to that of like, hey, look, you've got you've got an explosion in these bacteria, right? And if yes. you push things into the other direction, you might see less of these mysteri mysterious things happen. They're, they're no longer mysteries, right? They're demystified at that point. So uh, I'm definitely with you on that being a future. You know, right now there's a lot of data. Like you, you go submit your sample and you're going to get a lot of information back and you're kind of like, well, what do I do with this? But that's not a negative. That just is, that's a, that's like the first step, right? And then, right. then you start to correlate things. At currently, like, of course, we don't understand any of that stuff. When I got my first aquabiomics test, I, I straight up called them and be like, um, what does any of this mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the same thing with ICP testing. Yeah. It would be the same thing for newbie aquarists to be giving when to be given uh, phosphate, nitrate, salinity, pH, uh, calcium, alkalinity, magnesium, iodine, iron, and all these things. Like if you presented somebody even with like the basics, they'd be like, I have no idea what any of these letters mean or what these numbers mean, <laughs> you know, but it's just it, over time, like we, we start, I just want to see the things that I should be having and the things that I shouldn't be having. Yeah. Now I gotta, I gotta tell you this anecdote that I heard and I'm not going to call out anyone, but um, someone we both know, and whose um, opinion or observation skills we respect has been dosing bleach to their aquarium. In, I, I'm assuming it's like, you know, it's just sodium hypochlorite, probably diluted, and then probably added to the tank in such small quantities that it's just like, um, what do they call that stuff? Holistic medicine, where you dissolve, dilute, and then dilute, and then dilute. Microdosing um, or whatever. I think it's, yeah. And, and so what he found after, I think, I guess doing some microbiomics tests or some other tests is that what his, his philosophy or his approach to it is just to try to knock back everything, right? So there's a couple of schools of thought on a bacteria is like, um, over a long period of time, certain things will take over and you get an imbalance and it's not necessarily one's bad as one's good, but you might have just a little bit too much of the, uh, heterotrophic bacteria that like to feed on stuff like very vulnerable coral tissue versus the autotrophic bacteria, 
who are like processing stuff from the water. And I just thought like it kind of blew my mind, but I was on board pretty quickly. Just the idea of like dosing bleach in any form, any concentration to the aquarium. I'm not anyone listening right now, please don't even don't. think about it. <laughs> don't even think about it. Just move on. I'm just saying he was using this approach to knock back all the bacteria at once. And as they, you know, knocking them back, kind of reset the the baseline for everything, you know, and then they would grow and then they would be knocked back. But I thought that was a very interesting, interesting uh, take. You know, I've, I've it, heard of it, people doing that with uh, hydrogen peroxide as well. I was just about to say, like, it's not really that far off from yeah. dosing hydrogen peroxide to your tank to have some kind of antiseptic effect. Yep. I just had, th had to throw that in there since we're talking about this stuff. Well, and, you know, the question, is it is it similar to, I guess, having ozone on your tank or something, right? It's an oxidizer of, right. of sorts. So, having a big UV, having ozone. Yeah, I mean... I, I, you know, I don't know if we're going to be the generation that develops this stuff and, and pushes the envelope on this stuff, but I'm excited. I'm excited to see what, uh, you know, the next 10 years are going to bring in terms of understanding and management and describing the bacterial populations in our tanks. Because, man, when you have a lot of corals, you, you do not like the... Um, uh, undetermined, just random coral recession, right? The top of the corals look amazing. Or for some reason, the bottom, you know, it's not too little light, but for some reason, the bottom just recedes ever so slowly. And you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, that's where I think a lot of the mystery still lies, right? Is, is the, we, we still have mysterious coral ailments that, um, I think, I, I'd like to see some progress there over time and whether that's through analyzing the bacterial load of the tank or even doing tissue scrapings on corals, right? Um, it was interesting because when I had that um, stony sudden tissue loss, uh, SCTN bacteria, I yep. actually sent them um, some from the coral itself that was dying and it was interesting because it was in the water column, but it wasn't on the coral, but that could have just been a bad sample or something. So, what, the one thing that's interesting and really remarkable about the Caribbean stony coral tissue <laughs> loss disease, SCTLD. It's tough for you too, good. <laughs> doesn't affect acros. Yeah. Like acros die if you have the wrong movie playing in the neighboring city, you know, like every, just the randomest things, it was affecting everything but the acros. I'm not super sure about the, um, like the thins, thin tissue stuff, like, uh, agaricia in the Caribbean. So we're talking about Caribbean corals, but for sure, like all the copophilias, manicinas, mycetophilias, all the fleshy stuff and, uh, orbicella, all that stuff was suffering. It was, it was, it is still going on. And now they're documenting it further away from the Caribbean. But for once, it was not killing Elkhorn. It was not killing staghorn and it wasn't killing prolifera. So, you know, that's one of those strange things. It wouldn't have affected your soft corals and it wouldn't have affected your acros. Uh, quick 30 second side story. Uh, when I was on a uh, sea kayak trip in the Bahamas, like these were, but it was in the Exumas, you know, where there's a bunch of uninhabited islands and stuff and we'd be camping. And so I'd go explore the island with my buddies who are not reef keepers we mm -hmm. went around this rocky ledge in the middle of nowhere, and I looked down, and there's palmata, just huge ones everywhere oh. below the water. 
And I'm just screaming with joy, right? Like, I'm like, oh, crap, I got to go get my snorkel gear. You know, and I ran back. There's an underwater tree. Yeah, there's just trees underwater, right? Uh, And they were healthy and everything. And uh, my friends had no, like, they didn't get it. They were just like, what is going on with this dude? together. Yeah, I had to explain it to them, you know? You're like, you have no idea how important, significant, and unique this coral is growing in this one place. That's one of the interesting things about Acropole Palmata. I know it's been wiped out by like 99% throughout the Caribbean, but every now and then you just find a spot. You find a spot and it's not just surviving, it is thriving and blanketing and just absolutely dominating that's, that's you know, kind of smaller scale habitat. Yeah, and it's cool. so cool. Oh my God, that's a cool coral. Anyway, I got a little side story I want to throw in there before we right. forget, but it kind of it, it, it ties into this conditioning quarantine process we're talking about. So you don't get those three purple tilefish. Well, I have four, but one of them is blind. So he's in some kind of purgatory. But I put the three out in a display and um, I kind of borderline hate them because, oh, no. because they live within three inches of the water surface. And I'm watching them right now. I, I fed them like twice today and they do this thing where they're like just together breaching the water surface like i'm talking about head and eye totally out of the water spitting just kind of wiggling together right at the surface and they're they look like uh like synchronized swimmers just sitting at the surface just breaching non-stop i'm like dude go hide in a rock i, I it's like the fish is arguably gorgeous and I am absolutely hating its behavior because I don't know if they got conditioned too much or they became so tame that now all they want to do is just live at the water surface and spit water and beg for food. I don't, I'm not one of these aquarists that reacts to that kind of behavior, right? I am going to feed you whenever I want. You know, I might skip a day. I might feed you three times in a day, but they just nonstop live within three inches of the water surface. They don't swim in the middle of the tank, all beautiful and graceful, like, like you expect from like, an antheus or a flash of ras. and it's a fish i've had on my list for like three years i'm like did i over condition these did i train these guys too well They're like dog puppy dog for food yeah but but non-stop it's not like when you just walk up to the tank and all of a sudden they're there at the water surface they live there they just live at the water surface it's annoying <laughs> good problems to have definitely yeah, luxurious world. problems i had a regal tank that was like that and he would splash water over the tank and it pissed me off. I'm like, dude, you're ruining the stand. There's always salt all over the tank. And uh, I, even on my webcam, like, I could see him. And he he would also inhale air and then, uh-huh. like, uh, basically generate bubbles out of his gills. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just, I think there was something up with him. Like, I think, uh, I think captivity did something to him. <laughs> you know, if you had, let's just say, you know, six different species uh, specimens of one particular species if you put them together they tend to mimic each other but if you put them in six different tanks man they will develop such different personalities different levels of like feeding behavior different levels of aggression even with like the same tank mates and kind of same general environment i mean they they really do i wouldn't go so far as to anthropomorphize them as having personalities per se but they are individuals for yeah. sure for sure no, I agree. I mean, I've I've kept uh, the same type of fish. I'm I'm pretty boring. I kind of always go for the same type of fish. And I was actually kind of surprised that after ten years of having a regal angelfish, 
you recently lost one and you went right back to it. Like that kind of surprised me a little bit. I'm like, yeah. if I had an exotic fish, like, I don't know, an Emperor Angel for 10 years, I'd be like, oh, you know what? Let me get a different one. But granted, there aren't that many fish like a Pygopleides diacanthus. Well, and in my experience with one fish, which isn't a good sample size, they are relatively reef safe because the corals mm-hmm. they do like to eat are corals I don't like. So, so Jess? Um, from, from reading other people's experiences that exactly mimic my own, you can kiss every zoanthid goodbye. You know, like oh, eagles yeah. will devour the crap out of them. And I don't care not, about zoanthids. So. I'm not huge on them either. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll send you a couple sun polyps just to see if those make the cut. Because, I mean, you saw my, my Palithoa Grandis collection. I mean, I've added a few more since you visited. Um, I don't know if they'll qualify. But, yeah, you want to eat the zoanthids, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting if the such a toxic, you know, example would be uh, palatable. Um, so yeah, they're reef safe. They don't get too big when it comes to large angels. Um, and I was actually talking about not doing large angels again and just going with like a harem of pygmies, which I do have some flames in there, um, flame angels, but I just, I saw it on the website and I was like, man, I miss that fish. And then knowing Mm. that it's fully conditioned and probably eating well and quarantine, I was like, all right, how do I say no to that? Right. So, um, they are, they are great. Uh, well, I don't want to be responsible for anybody's coral losses, but in my experience, they're probably one of the better choices if you're willing to put the effort into conditioning them, which can be a pain in the butt because sometimes yeah. they don't eat. Um, I, I debated doing a little something a little more risky, like a majestic angel, or Ooh. yeah, but I don't know. Go go with what you know, and it's such a beautiful fish, man. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have to say, man. If I get fresh fish, obviously they're going to a hospital tank first, just in case they need any immediate treatment. And within a 10-gallon tank with a power filter and a cover, um, I can I can concentrate the food near them a lot easier and just kind of fine-tune it for that fish um, before they go into the main like long-term quarantine conditioning system. Um, but man, my biggest hack for quarantine fish is look out for used fish. Mm-hmm. I have picked up so many good fish. Man, you know what I got this past weekend? I got a five-inch coal tang for 17 frags. It cost me 17 frags, you know, half of them bubblegum digi, the other half like neon green uh, candy coral. And I had never seen a coal tang this big. Obviously, five inches is not that big for a surgeon fish. But the, I, had, I didn't – I had no idea. I don't, think I've, I don't think I've really seen a big coal tang before. Um, the yellow patch around the eyes grew more than the fish. So he's got bright yellow eyes and like a big yellow patches around the eyes. It was really, really startling. I, I, I'm really glad I got that fish, especially for some spare frags that were taking up, uh, you know, extra room anyway. Yeah, and that's sort of a rare fish now with all the, you know. Yeah, now, it, now it's on a tank. That was a, that was a tank teardown, and you could tell, man, that fish had been in captivity, you know, three, five, six, seven years. I'm, I don't know exactly, but it was it was a tank teardown. I didn't snag. The large six-inch uh, powder blue tang that came in on that tank. Right when I called the, the store, I overheard somebody saying, "Hey, I'll grab that powder blue tang." I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> I wanted that one too." Um, but yeah, looking out for for used fish from tank teardowns. The thing that's that's the thing. There's so many more people keeping aquariums now 
that you would also expect that the number of tanks coming down to follow the trend as well, right? If very few people are keeping reef tanks, then tank teardowns, for whatever reason, are going to be few and far between. But now that more and more and more people keep tanks, now you have even more tanks coming down. Sometimes they're coming down because somebody's moving or, or, or career changes or whatever, but there's a lot of amazing livestock there. The, to be had if you if you you know really keep an eye out and, and know which store in your area um never says no yeah i i haven't had much luck with that i mean i've kept an eye on like the local club forum and everything for but i mean i'm also looking for very specific fish because i've only got really one main display tank now you know and i'm mm-hmm. there's a there's a finite amount of fish i can keep so i i have an idea of what i'm what i'm going after but um but I would agree with you. Like a, that's essentially like an Uber conditioned fish that's mm-hmm. um, used to captive life. Um, and and even if there was um, some type of parasite load, like usually those fish, you know, it's, I've had this where I've had some ick in the tank from uh, in, introducing a bunch of snails, and it's like the local residents that have been there a while, like doesn't phase them, but the new guy is like, "Whoa, what is this?" Yeah. You know, and then it takes a few rounds for them to develop some level of resistance to it um but i think a fish that you pick up from another tank i would still quarantine it but yeah you would you would get that benefit i would say so i know this is a a point that you want to make is i would say that preventing ichthyophorus irritans from your tank is practically impossible I don't think it's totally impossible. Like if you really went the distance of isolating everything, um, keeping fish separate from your inverts and your rock and your cleanup crew and your invertebrates, you know, for a good solid month, you could do it. Um, I have two tanks where I have never seen a spot of it. But to the same point in my larger system, which all have incredible water flow, no sand, um, very active mechanical filtration between the tanks, not within the tanks. Um, I have seen it pop up before, and it didn't flare up for any reason, you know, and it didn't even really flare up. It was just like very minutely present. Um, but I have a hybrid powder blue, powder brown tank in one of those tanks. And if there was ick active in the system, for sure he would show it. Um, but I, I think a, a lot of reefers would agree that you know, when the fish is established and conditioned, they're just not going to fall that easily. They're not going to just fall like a fly and be like, oh my God, what's this ick? You know, but a immunocompromised fish who doesn't have that much weight, who's just exposed to, you know, ick spores, they're going to be a prime position to uh, really develop a, a heavy, nasty infection and spread it to everyone. That's, I think that's one of the things that doesn't get really uh, talked about is how one sick fish or one weak fish is going to be the vector for the, you know, really making it a bad time for the rest of your fish. Well, that and, um, yeah, I mean, I I think it's, I I agree with you. I think it's technically absolutely possible to have an ick-free tank, but it's a very challenging goal to accomplish. And I think, um, you know, I did the fallow thing twice, right? I had a nick outbreak in, and I'm do- not talking recently. I'm talking about in, in my reef keeping history, right? I've, I've had moments where I went fallow for months and months, um, and fully eradicated ick only to bring it back through invertebrates. 
mm-hmm. um, or corals mm-hmm. with frag plugs. And it just took one little tomont fixated on a frag plug or a snail shell and it was back. And, you know, people would argue, well, maybe you never got rid of it. I'm like, no, I went years without it, right? I had power failures. I had heater failures. And because I would say- Everything they, they, that could have kicked it off. Yeah. And, and that, that's the one thing I would say is if you are going in the ick management route, be ready that a stressful event, right? Like a power outage or something could trigger a bad situation where their immune systems go down and you might get another flare up. But, um, but anyway, um, the, the goal of being completely ick free would mean that you would have to quarantine for over a month Probably what is it? Forty days, forty-five days. Now some people say seventy. I thought it was, 70 I thought days? It was twenty-one. I thought. I mean, maybe there's new, some new research, but I always thought it was twenty-one days for the cycle. Granted, I'm a little rusty on the exact life cycle. I think Hemdall's saying like forty-five, but I could be wrong. Um, like four weeks or something. But I mean, can you imagine every coral you get? Every if you renew your cleanup crew and you bring in like fifty Astria snails, you're going to keep those in another tank for. Let's just say it is forty-five days. Or, yeah. you, don't, you don't. You You can't just keep them there, right? right? You have to take care of them. You have to right. make sure they're aerated. Maybe not worry about nitrogen cycle, but you might you got to make sure they eat food. You know, it's not just oh, I'm going to keep them in this tank over here. You also have to feed them and take care of them. Right, and that gets into the territory where I I argue like, okay, I get it. I get the ick management argument because that's that's a big thing to. Um, for every hobbyist to do to get to get to that level of quarantine is a bit extreme, right? Mm-hmm. But that and so I agree with you. Like, but the thing that doesn't really scare me is it doesn't scare me as much as uh, flukes and velvet flukes. and yep. There's nothing worse than having a single fish wipe out your entire population of fish, and that's happened to me right uh, before. And that was when I saw the light about quarantine. I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, and it was a cheap fish and it took out a lot of really expensive to me fish. Like not, not, you know, I wasn't keeping conspix and. I don't think there's a single person alive who's learned that lesson the first time. The easy way. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, you learned the the first time. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think there's a single person who's, who didn't think later on, oh, I can get away with this. Right. And. For me, it's again, it's not even so much about ick. Um, it's it's the other less treatable things that you you mentioned. Um, but I I don't think I learned my lesson the first ten times. You know, it wasn't like a, um, you know Russian roulette or whatever. I saw a fish and I just threw it in the tank. I'm like, oh yeah, this fish came from a tank teardown, or you know, he looks really healthy and robust, or yo, those that kind of fish never has ick or introduces ick. Man, I I had a you know the closest thing I had to a wipeout was in my freshwater tank beautiful rainbow fish display filled with cool rainbows that I had grown for years, sourced from interesting places. And I wanted to mix it up a little bit. And I added a big uh, watermelon Placo L330, big old Panak. He had no signs of nothing, you know? And I'm like, you know, Placos don't get ick. Well, he brought it in. And one of the things snowballed to another and I got like three rainbows left. I mean, the tank has rebounded since then, not in rainbow fish. Now I'm taking a different direction, but, uh, but yeah, you don't, you don't learn that your lesson the no. first time, almost never. Well, and it gets tricky too. Cause I mean, I don't really want to get into particulars of how to quarantine. There's a ton of documentation on that, but it's also I have slippery a video slope. up there. I have you a do video yeah. out there about it. Um, 
So yeah, I, that's a great point. We're not we're not even talking about how to quarantine. <laughs> we're not even talking well, about that because we're that talking about itself. the particulars and the 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 atmosphere around uh, quarantining. And uh, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Well, because even you know, if you how to quarantine could cause a debate, right? An argument, and how detailed do you go? You know, I know people that keep their quarantine tanks X number of feet away because of airborne transmission and. I don't go that far, right? I don't, Me neither. I don't pan, I don't, I'm not that um, OCD about it. But I think, and this is where you and I agree, some mild prophylactic treatments to get the usual suspects out of the way, right? Like some prazi, something to treat ectoparasites, and then just condition the hell out of your fish because they are going to be under a lot of stress when you finally put them in the main display. And if you've fattened that fish up and got him accustomed to the things that you like to feed and also just accustomed to you, that's the other thing is like, it's funny mm-hmm. you buy a fish and they're terrified of you. But then after about a week of feeding them in the quarantine tank, they're begging like a goldfish. So when you do put them in the main display, I do think they recognize you, right? I do think you walk up to the tank and they're like, oh, food, right? And they like what you eat. And so any little skirmishes that happen or any stress that happens, you've you've knocked down whatever was potentially uh, afflicting them, if if anything. And two, um, you've given them kind of a fighting chance before you released them into the prison yard. You know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'll say you know my fish. They recognize me. I walk around the studio all the time. You know, I got, you know, I don't know, 50 linear feet of tanks to look at. And they know if I have food in my hand. And the first thing, it's so funny because like the fish are so, I'm here, you know, uh, you know, eight, nine hours a day. I walk around, the fish are fine. They're happy. But like, if I walk over to the shelf that has the food before I even touch a container, every fish is at the feeding station. Every fish gets super excited before I've even pulled a container off the shelf or a bag off the shelf. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, these fish, these fish are definitely uh, creatures of habit. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you I, know, I, I think the analogy of like, you know, would you just like, oh, I, I, I'm gonna, you know, get a adopt a dog and it has fleas and it has a tapeworm and I'm just gonna feed it really well and I hope for the best. I've heard the counterpoint of like, well, you wouldn't nuke your dog with medicine if he didn't have any symptoms, right? But um, and that's a fair point. But the problem with that is that some of the things that I, I I'm mostly paranoid about, I can't see. You know, I mean, unless right. I get that's into the, gill scrapes t- and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I think one thing that we could establish as a baseline for quarantine is isolation. Mm-hmm. Isolation and long-term observation. You don't even need to be an expert or even very far removed from a beginner to look at something for a few days and tell, is it healthy? Is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? When this applies to corals, fish invertebrates, you know, and on and on. And, you know, I've been so freaking diligent about quarantining and isolating my fish before they go into the displays, before they go into the fish tank. And um, I need to do that more for new corals, new corals, because now I have so many freaking corals and so many displays, and some of them are linked and some of them are not. But I'm like, all right, from now on, anything that's 
been shipped. I mean, if it's a frag from a friend and it's been in a tank and not causing problems, that's one thing. Yeah. But anything that's been a part of the supply chain and has been exposed, even if the coral's not wild, but it's been exposed to wild corals, um, I am going to be probably setting up like a 30 or 40 gallon tank. And I always had that in mind. It just didn't materialize because, you know, here's the thing. When you're first setting up a tank or first building a studio, everything is quarantined, right? Everything is new. Everything is freshly introduced. You know, so if uh, one thing I would say to some of the, the newer aquarists that are, you know, listening to this, your, t- your first tank is a quarantine tank. When, as you're adding the first handful of corals, it doesn't make sense to isolate your corals from a tank that doesn't have any corals in the first place. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's the fish we're talking about mostly, but like, yeah, right. Right. When you're starting out, yeah, have fun have fun if you see something luscious and that you want at a fair price you know when your tank is newer and you're looking at a you know you only have a let's say a couple dozen corals or 10 or 15 corals um you're good you're good your tank is already quarantined because it's isolated from everything else so when you're starting out you can definitely you know get away with adding corals to start you don't have to isolate corals from a tank that doesn't have any corals yet true yeah yeah, I mean, and I don't know when 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 your number of corals is relatively you know thin. I mean, really, the main pests. I would say the the most common pests that you encounter when you're you're new at this thing are are things you can live with, right? I mean, I, dare I say, adaptation not the end of the world. Um, uh, what are those? I mean, uh, there's there's five things you can do for adaptation. Right, you can hit them with a chemical. You can add bergen into a rock. You can add peppermint shrimp. You can add aptasia eating file fish, and or you can add a copper band. Yeah, right. There's so many things you can do. That's what I but should like, do. I, I should take my copper band and move them to the coral quarantine. <laughs> dude, I did the same thing wild. with my. You know, when we shared anecdotes a little while back about our first copper bands after more than 20 years of reefing, I moved one copper band from the f- one 4x8 coral flat to the other 4x8 coral flat. Now I'm just like, all right, now I need to catch the copper band from the hundred gallon, the four-foot, hundred-gallon tank, and then put him in the mangrove because he's looking a little skinny. He's not quite eating mastic. So I had to pound the, f- the tank with a little bit more mysis. But if I just got him in the other tank, there's some big, chunky aptasia in there. I'm like, oh, yeah, that'll hold him over for like two weeks maybe. <laughs> Yeah. That'll buy me a couple of weeks. Yeah. Aptasia, there's so many things you can do. But um, when it comes to isolating your livestock and your cleanup crew, invertebrates, corals, an ounce of, uh, ounce of profession is worth a pound of cure, man. I'll tell you what, especially with the high stakes game of like fully loaded reef tanks. Yep. Yeah. Once your tank gets mature, once you have a lot of fish, a lot of coral, it's worth it. And it's a sliding scale. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have bad experiences quarantining, but that's usually because the quarantine setup is set up in a rush, right? It's usually like, hey, I bought something and I need to put it, you know, and it's not looking good. So I got to put it somewhere or, um, or you're just really excited to start getting some livestock. But I mean, I just keep some cheap PetSmart mollies. And of course, my uh, bug eyed, uh, deformed jaw, lat, lat is not as clown. <laughs> Yeah, but they're my. They just keep the biofilter going. They're happy. They're well fed. I overfeed that tank just to, but do lots of water changes on it when I when I can. So it it's just it's just a ripe tank, right? Like I can throw some fish mm-hmm. in there and feed, and 
Uh, my nitrates are going to skyrocket, but I'm not going to get an ammonia spike or anything like that because I got fish that are just hungry little pigs that are living in there anyway. Um, but I, a lot of times when I see people who gave up on quarantine and you start to look into it, it's usually just not a really mature system that they're using to quarantine. Exactly. In. It's a sliding scale. The longer your tank goes and matures and it's filled with fish and corals and invertebrates that you love, the more of a gamble it is, the longer you go to add something new from from the wild or from an unknown unknown reef tank. So yeah, that's it's it's a it's a tricky gamble. I don't know how to how to tell people I don't know how to give people pointers to hang their hopes onto, you know? Yeah. Um, but one thing that to not hang your hopes onto is garlic. Oh, geez. garlic will not do nothing for ick. It's a good there appetite been, stimulant, like maybe some fish, but that's about it. it garlic. I, I, I look at, I literally will do a, a, a Google scholar search every couple of years just to see where it's at. No doubt, garlic, not even just for fish, but like for all manner of aquaculture of invertebrates, it is just a, a bio benefit. It, it, it's everything possible as far as just like helping with the general health, appetite stimulant, um, knocking back certain parasites, not eradicating them. But I mean, I remember when, when garlic really first came out as a, as a treatment. Um, what was it? The Ecosystem Aquarium Garlic Power or something? Yeah. And, and I was just swear by that. And I would, everybody who had ick, I'm like, oh, yeah, just add this to your food. It'll be fine. And now they make foods with garlic in it. I'm like, man, that don't do nothing. Mm-hmm. It makes, yeah, it makes your fish just a little bit happier, but it's just like taking vitamins. It makes them a little stronger, might give them a little bit more appetite, but there is never in the history of everdom been a tank whose ick outbreak has been treated by feeding the fish more garlic well and on the topic of feedings the naysayers of quarantine are like no you just gotta feed the fish more you gotta put it in your system and fatten it up and it's gotta get you know bacteria in its gut and blah 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 and i'm like you can do all that in a quarantine tank i mean it's um you don't need to put it in your earthy natural reef to Mm-hmm. To, to stimulate its immune system. And then, you know, it's not like we're doing, I mean, you know, chemicals can be harsh, don't get me wrong, in a fish, but there are ways to to treat a fish prophylactically, with, prophylactically without, you know, it being like chemotherapy, right, and, and knocking the fish down. So, um, yeah. I, Th- don't, don't think of quarantine as like a part of a hospital ward. Yeah. Think of quarantine as like the lobby where you get to know that animal for a little while. You know how aggressively it eats. You know how what it likes to eat. You know how it likes to behave and where it likes to sleep before it goes into the you know rough and tumble environment of your main display or displays. Yeah, I mean, COVID is a great example, right? You, if back in, the, in 2020, and who knows, it might come back now, is you go travel somewhere and they'd be like, listen, you know, we want you to stay in your hotel for a week or two. Make sure you didn't get anything nasty. Enjoy the food. Watch the movies. You know, it's not like they were pumping you full of medicine, right? They were just right, right. Like, You're hey, just you know isolation, just chilling. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. The I don't know. I I see a lot of tanks, huge tanks with fish rooms and elaborate sumps and crazy three hundred gallon tanks. And it's like I feel like if you're spending that much money, one, you have room for a quarantine tank, but two, <laughs> um. 
quarantine you know, tanks. Yeah. Tanks. Because if you're that dedicated of a reefer, you're never going to be timing your, your new fish to come in right when your last batch is ready. Yeah. I know, I know we're already like, Oh, you set up a quarantine tank and I'm over here like, uh, no, you need two. I mean, if you're like a really active aquarist, you want two. You know, if you're a normal aquarist, like a sane person, one is totally fine because you're not getting new stuff all the time. But, um, if you're a little bit more of an aggressive reefer, you never know when that next rare fish is going to come in or that used fish is going to fall in your lap. And like, uh, that's why I have two hospital tanks. Although one of them now has kind of been earmarked for cor- corals. One of them is a hospital tank for fish and then have a kind of long-term conditioning system for fish. Um, but I think that's a pretty good segue into acclimation boxes. Yeah. I think that was one of the major points you wanted to hit on. And I think this was an interesting kind of a co-discovery by, I don't know, hundreds of people across the yeah. aquarium hobby over the last three to five years. Yeah. Would I would say, I would say the acclimation box and there's, there's different vendors that sell them. Um, Tell the viewers and listeners, what is an acclimation box? So imagine an acrylic box. Um, some of them use magnets. Some of them have hang on hooks for your, you know, aquarium. It's uh, it's perforated acrylic, so water flows through it. So essentially, it allows you to put a fish in it, and it's getting used to its environment. It can swim around, you can feed it, and all of your other fish can now see that fish without uh, getting to that fish, right? Without um, being able to do anything aggressive or territorial against the fish. And for me, that has been a game changer. I, I used to use egg crate, and I used to mm-hmm. always... Yep. Um, purposefully do my live rock in a way that I had a place in the tank where I could partition the tank with some egg crate, but that was a pain in the butt, right? Cause now you got to herd all your fish to another side. Yep. Yeah. Um, so when people, when, when companies started making these acclimation boxes, I, I picked one up and I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how much the introducing a new guy to the fish tank or a new fish and then everybody freaking out and beating the crap out of that fish, how much diminished that is. Because if you keep that fish in there for, I mean, I, some, sometimes I do it for three days, right? Um, but then once I open the door and let that fish out, everybody's bored already with that new fish. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is like... I don't know. It hasn't been discussed nearly enough. I think a lot of people know, but it hasn't been crystallized like nearly enough that acclimating your fish to the presence of a new introduction. Yeah. They get bored. When you first add a fish to a tank, man, they, everybody wants a turn. <laughs> everybody has to get their pound of flesh. It's crazy. I mean, it depends what kind of fish you already have. depends what you're introducing. But when you have the acclimation box, yeah, yeah, two, three days, one or two weeks, you just keep it in there. So it's like, it's like a halfway house between, you know, the full on isolation ward and going into your full display. It's like, all right, here you go. You're now you're in the tank. Everybody can see you. I can still watch you, but I don't have to have to manage the chemistry of the old, you know, quarantine system or isolation system. And here you go. You can hang out for a little while and with very few exceptions. That will probably just evaporate ninety percent of the of the aggression that's likely to occur. It's yeah. it, it's hard again one to put boundaries on it, but yeah, for for almost all reef tanks and and display fish tanks, just 
keeping that new introduction and acclimation box um, is just, it's a game changer. Yeah. It's a game changer. Usually the aggressions, usually the fish get bored eventually. They tire. I think that's a better word. They get tired of being territorial. But by the time that happens, the damage is already done, right? So it's more like you're just hoping the fish survives the roughing up and then the fins can grow back a little better. But yeah, and then the other thing is like if you are in an ick managed state, right, where there is a little bit of ick that flares up when there's a stressful event in your tank, well, you just created a stressful event for everybody. And I've seen that even where the resident tanks get ick because they're stressed out about the newcomer, right? Yeah, um, newcomer's got a heavy infection and he's spreading it around just like cooties. Um, yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's it's really observational. Like I put the Regal Angel uh, in an, uh, and I, I bought one other fish with him, a Swallowtail Angel. I put them both in their own acclimation boxes uh, in the morning. Ooh, fancy. And I just watched, man. And I watched and I mean, this Regal is smaller than my Flame Angel, my largest Flame Angel, right? Oh, he's got a tiny one. He's smaller. That's what was so amazing was it was such a tiny juvie uh, that was eating pellets. I was like, this is awesome. But um, Lucky. Well, not too lucky because you got it from TSM. So I know they they already did the work. Yeah. and, And one throwback to quarantine. If you're buying your fish from a company that's reputable about quarantine, to me, that is quarantining your fish. You're just, you paid somebody else to do it, right? And you paid it a little bit more premium. It is so worth it. Yeah. Now, you know, there's there's companies that will slap a 7 to 14 day guarantee, not, not fingering live aquaria. But there's companies that will just do that and stores will just say that. And they'll replace your fish. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't. That just means you, they'll give you credit or give you another fish. That doesn't mean they've actually gone through the the motions of making sure that that fish is. They're making sure they're not going to get a callback about that fish that isn't positive, you yeah. know. And and if you dig deep, you know, there's a couple companies that are really trying hard. Like if they list their protocols, or you can find articles about these companies that are. Um, really describing what it is they do. You know, I think at, at the very least, you know, keeping some fish in copper for a little while, that's that's not even quarantine, no. right? But, you know, companies that stake their reputation on it, um, man, just not having to do the work and not experiencing the stress is totally worth the price. And yeah, so I, and, and that circles back to the acclimation box where, I put both these fish in their own uh, boxes, and um, I I fed the tank. I noticed the Regal Angel was trying to get at the pellets it saw through the acrylic that it couldn't get to. So I was like, oh, okay, let's feed you already. I thought you might need a little more time to get adjusted. But I watched, and I was expecting some tension, but uh, my Flame Angels, my Tangs didn't care. Right. They just didn't care. Like they saw the pellets inside the acclimation box and they were like, hey, I'm trying to get to the food. They didn't care. There was another fish in there. So by about 5 p.m., I, I, I made a gut move and I said, you know, these fish are quarantined. They're eating. My fish don't care. I'm going to not even go three days. I'm going to let them out. And all was well. Um, so I, I would still advocate a couple of days for them to truly get bored. But it it still even gave you the opportunity to see, well, who's going to freak out, right? Yeah. Because I have seen s- like a fish get like, oh man, oh man. You know, when I introduced my second flame angel, the, the, the resident flame angel, I could tell he was a bit tweaked, right? So I was like, okay, we're going to wait a few days, you know? So mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I, so, they're underappreciated. I don't know why more people don't talk about them. You see, like, there's... They're coming there's, around. Yeah. And before we get this question, I think uh, the most qu- commonly available one in North American markets is going to be the eShops. Um, yeah, it's a good, sizable box. You can put a you know decent, medium-sized fish in there. It's got strong magnets. It's got some partition. You can also double up as a frag rack, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, do Google search for that one and you'll find it. And so, I don't use acclimation boxes at the studio. Not flexing, but... Every you can see every tank from every tank, and the fish in the quarantine system are well lighted, and they are in, in view of everything. Mm. And so I've had pretty good luck, and actually been astounded when I've been able to add new larger fish to the fish display with like they they would just drop in like they've always been in there, no reaction. But that's because they could see them. Yeah. Right? I talked to Jules about this for for a bit. So if you have your quarantine tank next to the you know, the eventual tank, you're also that's part of the gradient of having that acclimation box. So you don't necessarily have to have that isolation container for the fish in your display to you know start taking in uh, the fish that are in quarantine that are going to be visiting them pretty soon. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean my my Q tank's down in the basement, far away. Right. Um, yep. Yep. So it's a different story, but, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it makes all the stupid stuff we did back in the day seem silly. Like where you tape a mirror to the tank or, you know, <laughs> like looking back, it's like, why didn't we just build boxes and keep our fish in it for a few days that, you know, I some of the best, some of the best discoveries are just serendipitous. Yeah. You know, we just and once they're out there, they're obvious, right? Like the best inventions are like, duh. <laughs> Hindsight is 20 freaking 20. Yeah. I think that's kind of all the points that I had about general quarantine and isolation. And I think in the near term to midterm, people are going to be applying that to corals as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was sort of the messaging I got out of my life this week was one, just getting conditioning a fish on my own while getting these amazingly conditioned fish. And then also suddenly seeing a pest I haven't seen for 15 years show up in my coral quarantine tank was like, oh, this is why I didn't put these frags in right away. So yeah, yeah. It was a it's good so funny, uh, you know, take home some tanks, In some tanks, you're just, you, you have a management plan, a mitigation plan to always keep it in check. And in other tanks, you don't have to do nothing and you don't really ever see them. And then once in a while, you move a coral, I'm like, oh, what is that brown squiggly thing? Oh, that's one Aptasia. Oh, darling little thing. You know, if it's just one, who cares? But yeah, when it when it when it when it creates a little carpet like you're seeing in your uh, isolation aquarium, uh, then you want you want to do something about it. Absolutely. Well, and I, in a way, I was that guy. Like, right? I was like, oh, I don't need to quarantine corals because I, I haven't seen an Aptasia in 15 years. It's like the guy that's like, I don't worry about fish parasites. I haven't lost a single fish. And then it's like, yeah, just wait. <laughs> Yeah, yo, no, you. It's Russian roulette. There might be, there might be a you know a hundred slots in that chamber, but you keep pulling that trigger, you're gonna get it. You're gonna get something. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm learning that to 
deeper degree, like more dimensions of that. And for sure here soon, I'm going to be setting up a 30, 40 gallon tank for anything that's been wild. And uh, you know, that's something putting out there is like, if you're buying frags, like ask the person if they really grew it, right? All of these fancy torch corals. And this is like the one that introduced some, some undesignated funk to my aquariums. Um, almost all those fancy ones, no one's really growing them unless they're really established strains like the dragon soul or, that's about it. <laughs> you no, know, but all you the bring holy, up all... a really great point, right? Is um, corals that you talked about used fish, like used corals, right? Or just corals from your corals. friends' tanks, right? They are probably not. I mean, they may bring pests, right? Your your buddy may have acro eating flatworms or whatever, but they're probably not going to bring the thing that just causes your whole coral to melt, right? Or mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? Like your 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 odds are better than. We take the we discussed tridacnids, right? I, I had that squamosa that just self-destructed, and right next to it is a durasa that's just growing bonkers, right? And it's just uh, one was from ORA, one of them was from who knows where, but um, it just kind of hit home. Like if I get frags from you, I'm not worried that you know you, you I, okay maybe I get an aptasia from you, but that's not the end of the world, you know. Um, well, some of the logic I apply to when I find used corals because there's also used corals um is that the coral didn't grow that big if it was like fighting off off pests or really like you know a harmful things all along the way you know if i find a an acro an organ tort acro this big that i got for a song of in a dance it didn't get that big because it was harboring flatworms and, and, and tagastes. You know, I'm still going to put it in one isolation system before it goes into like the main system. And everything takes like a couple steps before it gets into like the, you know, the really showy displays. Yeah. Shoe fine, shoe fine, shoe fine. Um, but yeah, so yeah, just, just be mindful that it's just, you, you, you really want to pay attention to what you're doing. Do you want to get to some uh, Q and A's? Sure. Yeah. Um, some of them are 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 pretty simple and straightforward, and and make sure to give them a shout out and thank oh, them for. Oh, I apologize. Yes. I didn't grab oh, the names. No. I was working and on a conference call that was rather boring, so I was like, copy paste, copy paste. But <laughs> so, all right, all I, right. Well, in the future, next time we'll go- I will grab the names as well. Um, yeah. The first one I had to laugh. At, I was like, can you guys call out what you dudes are drinking before the chat starts? And I'm going to create a very, I'm going to have a very disappointing answer because I used to be cool and drink all kinds of cool microbrews, but now I just drink Heineken. <laughs> oh, you freaking Dutch reefer. No, I, I, I do. <laughs> I, I've got some IPAs. There's one called Creature Comforts. Uh, oh man, Tropicalia. The Georgia people will know what that one is, but. Um, so I live in Golden, Colorado, which has the largest single site brewery in the world. And man, I love me the taste of banquet. I can eat, I can eat six banquets, you know, and have a, you know, feel about the same as like two solid micro brews. Um, I don't remember what this was called, but this one was super fancy. Ales, what cures you? Um, the fermentation sciences practitioners, proprietary recipes and propagated yeasts. I can't give away the, the, the brewery next door, you know, right away. But uh, yeah, I'm usually drinking something fancy, but banquet's my jam. I love that stuff. Yeah, I, li- I like good beer, but it's uh, I, I'm, now that I'm in my 40s, I, I recognize that uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get away with that anymore. I've got to. I'm right around the corner, brother. I'm, I'm a lawnmower beer guy now. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Um, the actual aquarium questions? Yeah. Well, so one that's come up a few times, and that's on me, is uh, links or videos of my tank. And yeah, you guys see guitars behind me and not much reef keeping. And so that's on me. I got to put a video together of the tank. I do have some pictures on Instagram, but um, that's not really a tank tour. Like, I'll I'll make a video. It'll probably suck, but I'll do my best with my iPhone and, you know, show you what I put together. Um, so, um yeah, to those that have asked that question, I, I, I'm aware. I need to get off my yeah. butt and do that. So, you know, I just have like this corner set up for podcasting and I got tanks. I'm like literally staring at tanks while we're doing reef therapy. This is like the one time a week I can just really take in things from a distance. And it's just like it would be a chore to move the lighting, the camera, the computer, the microphone, the amplifier all onto some other spot. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll find some great occasions to, to share video clips of our, of our tanks because I have to say, man – I am trawling the internet at any given time looking for great looking reef tanks and I can find some good looking equipment rooms and some good looking sumps, but they are like 10 to one to the actual aquarium. It's, it's kind of sad, but I don't want to end on a sad note. What no, else you got? I mean, I, and if, if the folks are okay with like a slightly reduced audio, I could probably set something up in front of my tank one night so that at least it's in the background and, you know, maybe use some AirPods or something. Well, um, you know, there, maybe we could just leverage a little technology where we just play videos of my tank, then your tank, then my tank, and your tank instead of doing a video. Big brain I on think Jake. it's possible. That's probably my the, the, the <laughs> technology might be a couple of years away. You think but we can we do that? Pull, okay, I, we might be able to pull it off. <laughs> um, this one, this one, you could hell. This could be its own podcast. Could you guys delve into the difference between our home tanks and the ocean? Um, oh boy <laughs> yeah and he went on uh, i mean i won't paraphrase the whole thing but he went on to our quote i mean um he, he talked about you know we're trying to match the ocean's chemistry but there's so much of our systems that don't match the ocean to begin with um and it's an interesting point um i don't really know where to start with that the one thing I that do. okay people have this notion that the uh, no, that the ocean is like this beautiful, ideal, optimized place to just live your life as a sea creature, and that is just couldn't be any further from the truth. Every creature in the ocean is fighting to survive, whether you're a coral, a clam, a fish, a sea cucumber. Like there's something out there to eat you. Then, and here's the thing: here, here's uh, probably like the main point I want to make. People fetishize stability, and that could be its own podcast. Mm -hmm. They just act like it's some magical thing. Yep. Well, let's all right. Let's take the example of the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef, the, the Northern Barrier Reef, is closest to the equator. It has the most stable conditions, and it's experiencing extremes of of water temperature. The Northern Great Barrier Reef bleaches. The southern Great Barrier Reef, which is closer to the pole, not close to the pole at all, but it's further from the equator, it experiences the widest range of temperatures and the most extremes of environment. They, there's no bleaching happening in the southern Great Barrier uh, Yeah, the southern Great Barrier Reef. I would dive in and say the Great Barrier Reef, it was 69 degrees in the wintertime. Right, I was surrounded by angelfish and clams and aquaporas, and I'm like looking at my dive watch the whole time, like, how is this even possible? This does not compute at all. And so, 
there's definitely this this fairy tale about the ocean that it's just like this perfect environment and things are so stable so awesome like okay sure you have a huge pool for diluting uh, nutrients and pollution dilution is the solution to pollution so the ocean is super giant and this giant reserve of minerals which never get depleted like they would in the ocean but they have to experience storms they have to experience seasons like even closer to shore where there's some shallow water acros like twice a day, there's a tide coming in with, you know, fresh ocean water and a tide going out where they're just getting bathed by very hot, probably lower salinity, a dirty and high turbidity runoff from the land. You know, so like the ocean, unless you're talking about a really, really isolated place that no humans or almost no humans ever go to, every habitat that we go to are pretty close to like humans and the shore and the forest and the dirt that runs off of it. So I think that's the biggest difference. I think our tanks in many ways are actually too stable. They're more stable than what you would see in the ocean. I feel like I could just sit here and, and, and tirade for 20 minutes, but that's my, my first answer. <laughs> no. And I, I think the, the key word too is competitive advantages occur because certain things can handle certain stressors or certain conditions better. And so when you do go snorkel or scuba dive and you see areas where leather corals dominate and you go over here and then all of a sudden you start to see SBS corals more like acroporas and stuff dominate. And then you go into some lagoon near, you know, where a bunch of people hang out on the beach and you'll start to see like some uh, uh, more of the, the more quick spreading soft corals, right? And so you see mm -hmm. like this variety, but it's competitive advantage, right? If you look at a pylon on a pier, you'll see different types of algae and different types of snails because the higher you go, the, the organism that can handle more exposure to air and more intertidal change better has a competitive advantage there um, right. against the other guys. And so... The, the key point out ab about that is that it's not this big, like when you say ocean, that's a very generic term, right? It's a very... There's so many environments. Yeah. So many habitats. different stressors, right? And my personal opinion is, so one argument I've heard is that, you know, in the ocean is rich in food, but nutrient poor, right? So there's tons yep. of crap for corals to eat, but mm -hmm. there's tons of water volume to take the pollution away. So, yep. um, you know, the argument is like, hey, feed your tank heavy, but then skim the hell out of it and do carbon dosing and make it nutrient poor. That's been always a recipe for failure for me in a tank. So here yeah. I am trying to mimic nature and that just doesn't work for me. So I don't, I mean, we've talked about this. I'm still skeptical about coral foods. And the, the one point I would make is if we had coral foods figured out, then why are we still having uh, such a difficult time with so many asymbiotic or a, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Non-photosynthetic yeah. corals, right? Um, because the one- You know what? This is a good time to call out every coral food manufacturer. These guys have had decades to do trials, to do experiments, to demonstrate that their food works, and they don't. They just show one tank, some guy who probably had very low nutrients, just finally start eating a food. And I'm like, oh my God, look at all the politics. I was thinking about this growth. last night. If money, if I, if I had more money and more time, I would get two tanks and, and, and do this experiment. But then your brain starts to talk about controls because 
what if the corals in the more in the the tank where you feed coral foods grow because of the addition the the additional availability of nutrients, right? So I'm, I am not exactly except for coral spawning, where you know that the coral needs like the whole suite of nutrients for the next generation. I am currently not convinced that just having nitrates and phosphate in your water is like 80% of the of of the way to actual feeding. That's my theory, that and fish boot, because <laughs> I, like I said, I mean, that number I, all the loose. coral food arguments I've heard have been very anecdotal. So, Ooh, how um, about the coral foods who claim to not uh, have any phosphates or nitrates? How does that make sense? Those are like the building blocks of life. Well, phosphate is like one of the building blocks of life. So. Right. So... You know who you are. And I don't want to put anybody on blast, but there's one company that claims that their food does not raise your, your nitrates or phosphates. Maybe it's just phosphates. I'm just like, yeah, that's not how food works. <laughs> if our food didn't have phosphates or nitrates, it wouldn't be food. And, it, and that's the same thing for corals. And, I, you know, I didn't want to go I, like that. I know we go off on tangents, but my, I, that was a good example of some arguments about replicating nature that to me don't work for me personally. And until somebody can successfully long term for many years grow non photosynthetic gorgonians, like, like forget then the dendros, right? Dendroneptias and all. Let's just, yes, talk, we, let's just do gorgonians that are, you know, non photosynthetic. Yeah. Yeah. Show me that. Show me somebody who's keeping those and they're growing and they're fragging them for five years and then I'll become a yeah. coral food believer. Stop throwing money at your influencers and set up a couple of experiments at your place yeah. to demonstrate that your NPS food actually feeds and grows NPS. And I'm not even talking about one you know, hyper-focused NPS coral specialist who knows the tricks of getting the food in there. Like demonstrated a couple times. Ooh, that was a great tangent. We started talking about the ocean well, and, and then about food and NPS corals and then putting companies on blast. I love it. Well, and it's this assumption that, well, the photo photosynthetic ones eat something different. You know, it's like, do they? No. I mean, they're all no, in the no, same water, in the same plankton. Uh, anyway, we'll stop there. Um, I, I think that might be a great question to put a pin in it and save some questions with the names for a future right. session. Fair enough. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a greater question for us to answer than <laughs> than than trying to compare uh, the, the wild to yeah. uh, a home aquarium but yeah i think our home aquariums i think the last thing i want to say on that question is that when i'm diving i would loosely group the corals 25 percent of the corals that you see out in nature you will never make your corals look that good in your aquarium 50 percent of them are doing pretty good and we can get our corals looking about that good in, a, in an aquarium. And then when I'm diving, there's again, another quarter of them that are okay. They're just getting by in a cave or underneath another coral or getting overgrown or getting blasted by sand or just whatever it is that I'm like, oh man, I wish I could collect that coral and just make it happier in my aquarium. You know? So there's like, there's definitely a whole gradient. Some, some corals, like some of the shallow water acros, I mean, you could spend all the money in the world and energy just to try to grow that one coral, like the palmata you mentioned, like you would need so much light, so much flow to have one colony of Acropora palmata looking like it does in the wild. But then some other corals, you know, they're struggling. If you could just only put it in your nutrient rich, blue light, heavy, you know, home aquarium, you know, it would thrive. That's true. Yeah. it's a good point. Yeah. Awesome. I love the energy on this session. Let's try to incorporate a few more questions into some future ones because there's some good questions. There's some good thought provoking questions in the comments. 
Once again, this is going to be the final session of Reef Therapy on the Reef Builders channel. If you're listening to podcasts, don't even worry about it. But if you're watching this or consuming this on YouTube, listening, commenting, whatever, make sure to subscribe to the Reef Therapy YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, they'll be sh just a couple clicks away. Awesome. We'll see you All over right, there. Great, great a good conversation, yeah. Mark. We'll, we'll, we'll come at it next week and uh, we'll talk to you guys very soon. Sounds good, man. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys.